Hello, and welcome to another broadcast of the Political Shadings Podcast. I'm John Lawyer, your host. And I'm Andrew Goldberg, your co-host. Outstanding. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. A lovely fall day here in Washington. The leaves are falling. The government is about to <laughs> shut down. Everything's falling. Everything's falling. The nationals are out of contention. So yeah, it's, it's uh, well, you know, the weather is nice. That's the important thing. Well, uh, let's get some business out of the way. Uh, We're sponsored by Somfy North America, and we have our colleague on the podcast team, Jackie Hankard, who's going to tell us a little bit about Somfy and what they do. Jackie, take it away. For over 50 years, Somfy has been pioneering innovative motorization and automated solutions for window coverings and exterior shading products. With comfort, ease of use, security, and sustainability in mind, Somfy's seamless and connected solutions are designed to help people make the move to living spaces impactful for humans and with a reduced impact on nature. Outstanding. Thanks, Jackie. Always appreciate that. And the music that you hear, that we love, that everybody comments to us is amazing, was created by Joshua Espinoza. Joshua is an amazing jazz and studio musician here in the, the Washington, D.C. area. His website is Joshua Espinoza, all one word, lowercase, dot com. And we can't thank him enough for his contribution. Absolutely. You know, hope people come for the music, stay for the talk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope so. Um, so we've got a really great guest today. Yeah. Uh, somewhat famous in the political world, but let's start with the obvious question. Andrew, what's going on in Washington, D.C.? You know, John, I wish I could tell you, but honestly, <laughs> it's kind of hard to uh, to know. And it's changing hour by hour, minute by minute. You know, basically, yeah. we're, here we are. We're at the end of one fiscal year, government fiscal year, the start of another. Um, this is the time normally in a, a, a normal situation, Congress has to pass these 12 uh, bills called appropriations bills that fund various agencies. And that's an annual thing. Every year. Under the Constitution, Congress has to do that every year. And in the olden days of yore, way back when, (laughs) it was a normal process. Congress would get the bills done, negotiate. There would be some fights over spending levels and so on. They'd work it out, compromise, get to the president, sign it, boom, life goes on. Not so much anymore. And really for the last 20 almost 30 years now, you've had, on a fairly regular basis, these partisan fights, the bills get delayed, and so Congress has to pass what is known in D.C. lingo as a continuing resolution, or CR, which basically is a short-term stopgap funding, let's keep things running in the government so it stays open until we can finally come to an agreement. Uh, And a few times over the years, about five or six times, they haven't done that by October 1st, and the government has shut down. And buildings close. Well, so you and I are sitting in the beautiful Big big Wig Media Studios complex in the Willard Office Building. Uh, And we are basically also, you know, dealing with a a lot of these things here in D.C., not just the beautiful weather, not just (laughs) the shutdown. But, you know, this podcast might come out after... Right. Something happens that that neither of us have anticipated, which is either a continuing resolution, uh, some sort of stopgap measure, or some some long shot bill that that one side or the other puts forth. So, talk to me, you know, as we sit here in our our beautiful environment. What what are the possibilities? What are the the possible outcomes? What could happen? So really, it's, it's a very good question, and, and we, we don't know all the answers yet, and things won't be clear. Here's the basic 
the challenge is that you may recall back in the early uh, summer, Congress passed uh, a bill to to raise a debt ceiling, and as yeah. part of that, a negotiation between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But they agreed to spending levels. They agreed spending levels for this year or the coming fiscal year and the next year, and it was passed by the House, passed by the Senate, signed by the President. Everybody shook hands. Everybody done. We off. thought, okay, everything is great. Turns out that that a group in the House of very super conservative far right Republicans called the Freedom Caucus about three dozen or so members didn't like the funding levels. They wanted to cut more. And so they basically demanded that Speaker McCarthy put a process in place to, 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 to cut even more spending than what was agreed to. Why would he do that? He already agreed to the original spending levels. Well, the reason basically is because he essentially, his job depends upon keeping everybody in his caucus happy. There are 222, give or take, Republicans um, any one of them, a very narrow, majority. a very narrow majority, two eighteen. So he has about a four or five seat cushion. Any member of Congress can offer what's known as a motion to vacate the chair. This is new this year. It was one of the demands that got some these Freedom Caucus members to support his being Speaker. Uh, basically, means any member can stand up and say, "I offer a motion to vacate the chair. I offer a motion to fire the Speaker." And who knows what will happen? Would Democrats vote for that? Would not? It, it, it would be total chaos. Um, and so he has this very tight leash, for lack of a better word. And so when the Freedom Caucus said, we demand more spending cuts, he said, OK. Um, the problem is, is that the president doesn't support them. Senate Democrats don't support them. Senate Republicans, for the most part, don't support them. House Democrats don't. It's only House Republicans that are pushing this. And as you know, John, you need a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate, and the president to sign anything into law. And so this began a process over the summer where the House was working on these funding bills, well lower amounts than what the Senate or the president would support. Not only that, but then the Freedom Caucus added more demands on, everything from more border security spending. They wanted to cut money for or end aid to Ukraine. Uh, they wanted to, at one point, they came out with a letter saying, we want to see legislation to stop all of the, quote, woke policies at the Pentagon. Uh, we want to stop the political persecution of conservatives, in other words, the, the Trump indictments. Uh, and, this, and so this series of, of demands, which, let's face it, were never going to happen because they wouldn't support go through the Senate or the House or, or, the, or, to, or the White House. So it seems like they have no intention of passing anything then. Well, they, 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 they really can't. Or they could maybe pass it in the House, but that's not enough. It has to get to the Senate. It's not going to be ideolog ideologically palpable to the right. democratically controlled Senate. This exactly. the definition of bipartisan politics. Well, right. You have to work with the other side to get Work to with the other side. And here's the thing, John. Uh, you know, there are, in the House, there are 435 members of Congress. There are, without a doubt, a majority who would support funding the government, sticking to the levels of funding agreed to. The problem is there aren't enough Republicans to do that. And so the only way that Speaker McCarthy could get a bill through to keep the government open is to work with Democrats. But that would be the kiss of death for him politically, because well, then the Freedom Caucus will, will go, you know, bananas, go whatever <laughs> word you want to put in there, very angry, uh, and, and put that. So he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. I mean, place. this is not a man known for his heroics. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I think, you know, in terms of spine, it's, yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah, I mean, I think, but, and, and so... So, so what is the art of the possible here if the intention is to shut down the government? 
Well, and that's the thing, John. I think there are a number of these Freedom Caucus members who want to do just that. Their view is government is the enemy, government is terrible. Is this their constituents telling them this? Is this their personal belief? Uh, both, a little bit of both. I mean, remember, a lot of these members come from very heavily conservative Republican districts. They have been gerrymandered to be very safe seats. And so their constituents, they're fine with the idea of shutting government down. They're fine with having this battle. And so what they are basically have been saying is, we are not going to let anything go through that would be a compromise that could get through the House, the Senate, and the White House, uh, unless it's exactly what we want. And that's a recipe for, well, that's that's where you know, the, the immovable object and irresistible force hit. Well, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the m- past immediate Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had the same majority. Absolutely right. I mean, Democrats had a five-seat majority uh, in the previous Congress, the same number that Kevin McCarthy has. Now, to, to, to borrow a quote from uh, you know Lloyd Benson, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy <laughs> Pelosi. But look, and, and here's the thing. You, you, you can blame McCarthy all you want, and, and, and there's probably good reason to, but leadership also requires followership, right? You need to have people who are willing to put aside some of their own personal priorities for the common good. And you have a group of members in this, this Freedom Caucus who want to burn things down. They really want to see government shut down. Uh, they think that will help to make the case to the public, perhaps, that you don't need government. Uh, and look, we've been down this road before, going back to 1995 and the Newt Gingrich rev- revolution, when you've seen sure. government shut down and it doesn't work. People hate it. Uh, it. It ends up costing more money. The last government shutdown back in 2018, 2019, by some estimates, cost taxpayers an extra $5 billion for all the work of having to shut things down and delay things. So so what are they holding us hostage to? Uh, if, if it hurts them to do this, it's just theater it's ideological yes fanaticism <laughs> i mean it's a little like, bit of both it is yeah. it is a mindset that uh, look says you know my way or the highway and we would rather go down this route um and and, and you know i, I look I, I i understand from some level if you are a partisan on either side um congress can be frustrating right because at the end of the day neither party has rarely has the kind of majority to do whatever they want and put forward a pure agenda, either the right or the left. Yeah, I mean, the past administration had a majority in the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Yeah, and there are things they couldn't do. They couldn't get Obamacare repealed. They couldn't get funding for the the President Trump's border wall. And so, on one hand, I get it that a lot of folks can be frustrated that there's an election, they think they win, Republicans won the House, they think they should get to do what they want, but that's not the reality of the system, is that parties have to work together, folks have to work together. And so we're in this situation, and even no matter how this gets resolved in the short term, this is going to be a long-term problem. One, they have to still get these bills passed, these funding bills for the year, and then there's another year coming up right after that, in right. an election year. And so we're going to have these kinds of battles potentially for a long time. And you know, one of the things I want to ask, love to ask Ron about when he gets on is, you know, these kinds of battles, this kind of people pulling apart, you know, how do we kind of fix this dynamic in which it feels like both parts of the country or both sides are really pulling away from each other. And it's, it's, it's yeah. really frustrating. So what's the end game? So I, look, I, a couple things have happened. So in the past, generally what happens is the, the, these art of negotiation, uh, uh, 
Typically, what's happened is there's been a shutdown. The public reacts very negatively to that. You know, pictures of yeah, people, log lines. People's that, checks stop arriving. Arriving the military stops. stops getting benefits. It's, I mean, last time, back in 2018, you know, TSA workers. Uh, Just and, walked off the or, job. They're essential. They had to work without pay. So some walked off the job. Newark Airport uh, had to shut down. And so you'll have this growing pressure. Uh, from the public, and then eventually what happens typically is then there's a negotiation, and both sides try to find ways to give something to the other side, maybe to save face, but we reopen the government and we go back to normal, but then we have the same... We start it all over. Start all over again, exactly. So that's probably the most likely outcome, but it it is a a very large uh, challenge because, again, this really impacts... It's not just a matter of saying the government is shut down you know, businesses and, and people and organizations, they, they, they need some level of certainty that government programs are going to be in place, they're going to work, that there's a guarantee that if they have a government contract, they're going to get paid. If there are grants, those are going to go through. And I don't think any other country, any other developed country in the world behaves like us. I have to think that folks in Europe and, and Asia are looking at this with a certain amount of disbelief. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's unbelievable to us, and we've worked here for decades. Exactly. Um, so, you know, the Senate is about to pass a, a stopgap measure that would, you know, keep the government running for 30 or 60 days-ish yeah. um, and send it to the House. And Speaker McCarthy, I believe, just came out and said that absolutely would not be even brought to the House floor. So... It sounds like, ostensibly, that we are headed toward a shutdown. Um, how long could it go on? You know, it, 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 it's hard to say. Uh, the last shutdown, again, about five years ago, went on for, I think, about 35, 36 days. I mean, that's five weeks. And that's when you start to see some of those really big impacts on folks. Look, there are a lot of people here in D.C. in this area. There are a lot of federal employees here, not surprisingly. And, <laughs> right. and th- they will get paid back pay once the shutdown ends. With interest. With interest. But for right now, if you're trying to pay the grocery bill, the mortgage, the electric bill, you're not going to get paid. So there's going to be a lot of pain. I don't know how long this will last. I get the sense. I think most people would agree that the Freedom Caucus members are girding for a long fight. They're not going to give in easily. Now, there's one possibility that could help end it, which is something called a discharge petition. Uh, so that's a procedure in the House. So if you get 218 members majority, sign on to this petition, then they can bring a bill directly to the floor, bypasses committee, committee, leadership, whatever, all all the process. Right to the floor. If Democrats, and let's assume for a second that every Democrat would sign one for a CR, they can get five Republicans to sign on, they can bring it right to the floor. They don't even need the speaker. They don't need the speaker. And that's part of the the strategy there, which is that then the speaker can say, look, my hands are tied here. I'm not allowing it He's to He's out through. of the process. Yeah, the process. Now, again, of course, for Republicans to basically cede control the, uh, to Democrats on what happens on the floor would not be a, a good look for them, certainly. Is it, it, does it outweigh the bad look of the shutdown? That's a very good question, and that's something that they're going to have to confront. But look, you know, part of the challenge is, you know, democracy is messy. Let's let's, let's acknowledge that. <laughs> there are big disagreements, but at the end of the day, the system works when folks realize that there is a larger goal and a larger good. If you can't get everything you want, get get half a loaf, get part of it, and then come back and fight the next day, or fight in the election to get more candidates who believe what you believe to win elections. You know, another example is in the Senate, there's been for the last six months a blockade, a one man, one senator 
blockade of military. Senator Tuberville from yeah. the great state of Alabama. Alabama, former coach of, was it Alabama, I think? University of Alabama. Alabama. Uh, he has put a blockade on moving forward on any promotions. It's been very damaging to the military. He's doing it because he opposes a policy that the Defense Department put in place after the Dobbs decision last year that, that overturned Roe v. Wade, a provision that says that the military will pay if service members need to travel out of state for an abortion, they, they will pay the travel cost. He is against that. That's his, his right to do so. The way to deal with a policy you don't like is to offer an amendment, offer a bill, and if that doesn't pass, then you go to the into the campaign and, and, and elect more members who believe that position. What he's doing, because he can't get that through the Senate, is he's put Something a Something called unanimous consent. Right, exactly. Because he's now blocking all of these military folks. And, and you know, what I would say is this. Whatever your feelings on the DOD policy, f have a debate, have a fight. If the numbers are there to, to change it, the votes are there, then, then you win. If not, well, you don't. But to hold up... Uh, this blockade, hold up these these promotions in this blockade. I mean, it's hurting potentially national security, military morale. You know who likes this? China, I'm sure. Yeah, and Russia. Russia. And Russia. Um, so I, I, there has to be um, a culture of, yes, we're going to fight like heck. Can I say heck on the, in the air? I believe you can. I just did. Uh, you're going to fight hard for your positions, your policy, but at the end of the day, we have to move forward. We need to have people in place in the military. We need to keep the government open. Well, That's and to be fair, the Senate has sort of found a workaround to this blockade, which is they vote one, one at a promotion at a time, right. as opposed to hundreds and hundreds in a block. Which is the normal way to do it, right. And these are all positions, by the way, promotions that have been vetted by the committee, so it's not like this random people coming in right. off of Indeed.com. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, right, right. for instance, the first vote they took was to appoint a new head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Exactly, right. And, and so they did, for that position and two other high-level positions, they did go through the rigmarole of... So but, they found a way. Right, but there are hundreds. It would take them working nonstop 24 hours a day, months and months to go through that entire right. process, which right. would take away time for other things. So, you know, it, it, yeah, democracy is hard, right? It does, it, but it does take some give and take, and that's something where we're seeing a little bit less of lately in terms of members who have the ability to gum things up. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Look, we, you know, we're, we're at the intersection of politics and the green economy. The podcast is your window into that. So... This holdup, this this shutdown, shuts down essentially efforts within the U.S. Department of Energy right. or HUD or EPA or to exactly. essentially put forth policy and to enforce policy that would help deal with things like energy efficiency and exactly. green building and and uh, resiliency. So we're 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 not only we're not only, this isn't just about politics, right? This no, shoots ourselves in the foot. No, it impacts everybody. And, and sometimes, maybe not in ways that are immediately obvious, but it, it does. All of these kinds of issues it's housing policy, transportation, the ability of states and the federal government to work in partnership to clean up brownfields or to build and approve VA hospitals. Right. You name it, everything. As you said, for, for those of us who really believe in the ability of the built environment, the building sector, to create better buildings that are healthier, more sustainable. A lot of the work that happens at DOE, at the national labs, uh, research efforts, abilities to help create better building codes, all that comes to a stop. Right. 
Well, on that happy note, <laughs> um, and so we we sit here in our, our beautiful studios, you know, built and and run by our partners with Big Wee Media, and we uh, can't thank them enough for their hard work, along with our promotional partners at Evergreen Media. But absolutely, what? Let's talk about something a little happier. <laughs> let's talk about our wonderful guest today. Yeah, uh, we've got Dr. Ron Fauché. He's the president of Claris Research Group a nonpartisan polling firm here in Washington. Um, he has been a political pundit and a pollster in Washington for decades. He's been on hundreds and hundreds of national network TV news shows. He's the author of several books. He's the former state legislator from Louisiana. He served an editor and publisher of Campaigns and Elections magazine. He's taught at Georgetown and George Washington University. Um, we're really excited to have him. I know you used to work for him when you were working with the American Institute of Architects. That's correct, yeah. And, you know, there are folks in this town who really understand politics and campaigns. And then there are folks who really understand kind of policy working as a government. You know, there are very few who really understand how it all works together. And that's Ron, who really understands the democratic process, how to elect candidates, how to build advocacy programs, how to achieve positive results, and just a really great great guy who has tons of experience, has taught many people, including candidates, uh, how, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to serve and how to, how to, how to run elections. And right. Very knowledgeable, probably one of the foremost, most prominent pollsters uh, in the country. Yeah, I really want to zero in on, you know, we get a lot of, we are almost inundated with poll results. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. what, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does this poll say? So I really want to zero in on on what he thinks about that and 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 what he sees as sort of, you know, the next 13, 14 months, what they look like. Right, exactly. And what we should be looking out for in this in this, this right. very strange uh, election season that we seem to be entering very quickly. Brilliant. Well, after the break, we will uh, welcome in Dr. Fauché and... Uh, can't wait to get into the conversation with him. We'll be right back. And we're back. We're back. We are. And we are with our esteemed guest, Mr. Ron Fauché, a political pundit and pollster, perhaps one of the most prominent ones uh, in the U.S. Ron, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Happy to be with you. Outstanding. Outstanding. Let's jump right into it. Um, I'm sure, you know, those of our dedicated, actually, we used to say tens and tens, but now it's hundreds and hundreds of it's, listeners. It's growing like wildfire. Yeah, it's out of control, um, are, are, are anxious for these questions. But so talk to us, Ron, because, you know, Andrew and I sort of tossed back and forth what we wanted to talk about. Um, in your esteemed opinion, are polls still accurate? Are they still worth listening to? Because they seem to conflict, they seem to be inaccurate or accurate, depending, and, and none of us can tell when or how. So please, enlighten us. Do you think they're still accurate? Yes, polls uh, are generally accurate, but not always accurate. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's the, the bottom line truth. Yeah. Uh, polling has become more difficult to conduct because of the way people can be reached on cell phones as opposed to landlines and, and, you know, online polling and automated polling and all these other devices that people are using. I think what, what you find is this, that uh, when we look at elections and we look at the polls that were taken right before the elections, we find that a clear majority of the polls 
uh, are accurate. Uh, they, they are very much in the realm of where the election ended up. You also have to keep in mind that polls are, they're, uh, they're not crystal balls. Uh, they don't predict what happens after the poll is completed. They only tell you what has happened and what public opinion is at the moment that they're taken. So sometimes in elections, like for instance, the 2016 presidential election, where the polls had Hillary Clinton ahead and ultimately uh, Donald Trump won. Right. Uh, you know, a few things were at play there. Number one, a lot of polls weren't taken uh, th that were released, weren't taken in the last several days or the last week of the election. And Trump had a lot of movement uh, in the last few days of the election. Basically, voters who didn't like either one uh, broke to Trump right. uh, because they saw him as a change candidate. And that's something polls can't catch because you can't uh polls you know get a poll result uh, after after the poll is finished uh the other thing too is that um you know some particularly public polls but also some private polls are are not very well done uh their uh, corners are cut uh the people who are doing them don't want to spend the money to do a quality job and they use techniques that are fraught with with potential problems that's and, that's an interesting uh, point. So there's there's inaccuracy on the part of the pollster at times. There's a an entire huge portion of the electorate that won't answer their phones if they don't recognize the caller ID from a text or a phone call. So again, you know, Ron, you tell us you're the expert here, and and you know, I know you used to work with Andrew, and you you've had quite the storied career, but. So do, do polls matter if if that's the case? And, and if so, to whom? Well, I think polls do matter. And, and the reason is, despite the possible limitations that they have, yeah. uh, most of them are still accurate. They still work. Uh, but here's the key. They're the most effective way you can measure public opinion that there is. There is no better way to measure public opinion at any given time on just about anything. And, uh, and and it's not just a matter of taking the polls properly. It's also a matter of interpreting them properly and seeing what they mean and what you can read into it. And a lot of times people read things into polls that uh, that that isn't there and they misinterpret. And then that's publicly reported, and then it makes it look like the poll was inaccurate. Right. But, uh, but, but so, you know, the, the truth is that, you know, polls aren't perfect. They have a margin of error. If you take a poll perfectly, uh, it's, it's still going to be within a few points, either one way or another. And, uh, and you have to keep that in mind. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the point you made, you know, not all pollsters are created equal or work equally. What do you look for when you see a poll comes out? Mm. Obviously, you know, this company, this firm is reputable. This one may be less so. But how does the average person then know that, OK, this poll is a good one and that gives us a, a good reading. This one is a bit questionable. You know, mm. How does the average person kind of great, yeah. discern well, you know, that? that that's a great question because it's it's very hard to answer. Uh, you know, bad pollsters are capable of doing a good poll every now and then. <laughs> so a, like a broken, broken clock. Broken clock. Right, yeah. sure. It's right twice a day. And 
And that's true. And at the same time, sometimes good pollsters are uh, capable of doing a bad poll every now and then. And uh, so we, we have to keep that in mind. But there is no real answer to that. You know, the, the major polls that you see over and over again uh, generally are doing things on the right side of the ledger. It doesn't mean they always do things properly, but generally they do. And uh, and you have to keep in mind, and that's why I like to average polls, uh, right. because it sort of drains out some of that that era that may that may exist in some polls that are outliers. Yeah, the famous plus or minus uh, the the margin of error. It's, right, it's, it exists sure. in all things. And looking at the average, and I'll say, you know, one thing that Ron does, which is great, is he puts out this lunchtime polls, yeah. which is not looking at one poll. It's it gives that it average aggregates. over time, yeah. so you're getting a, a big picture. So uh, you're talking of polls, and of course, we're now about about 13 or so months. Out from the 2024 20, election, is that, is that all? Yeah, right. It, it feels closer or further. I'm not quite sure, but like, right. You know, especially when we're this far out from an election. I mean, what are the kinds of trends or even specific kinds of poll questions that we should be paying close attention to as we get closer? You know, there's the questions about who would you vote for if the election were held today. There's right track, wrong track. You know, yeah, in, incumbent approval. Right. Like, like, I mean, what are some of the the key kind of indicators that you look to to say, okay, this this is the way the electorate is 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 trending right now. Right. Well, you have to keep in mind that some potential candidates for president or any office are not well known. So uh, as they get better known, voters form opinions. So an early poll may not give you, uh, you know, a sense of where the voters will be after they have a chance to look at the candidate. But I do think, um, you know, regular trial heats where they say, you know, are you going to vote for Biden or Trump or whatever? I think they have value. Uh, they can easily change, but uh, but they generally tell you where things are and and will give you, a, you know, a good reading of where things are at that moment. They can't tell you, you know, we can't tell you where it'll be in 10 months or 11 months or 12 months. That's but we can cool. tell you where it is now and oftentimes because of the makeup of the voter coalitions on both sides, uh, a lot of those views aren't going to change much. And in the case, if it is, if it ends up a Biden-Trump race, I'm still not 100% convinced it will, but if it does, hmm. uh, it means that uh, you have two totally known candidates. So, so voters already know them. They know their strengths and weaknesses. And as a result of that, uh, things may not change a whole lot over time. Well, but I would also just more specifically answer yeah. your question. Uh, when you're looking at an incumbent in a race, look at the incumbent's job rating. You know, for example, the um, uh, Donald Trump's job rating uh, when he was running for re-election was pretty close to the popular vote he received yeah. when he ran uh, on election day. Uh, Barack Obama's job rating was about 50, 51 percent. And that's about what he got on election day. So, so I think when you're looking at incumbents like Joe Biden, job ratings are important. Although this is a race we haven't seen in a while uh, since uh, since 1912, when you had multiple presidents involved here, right. and uh, an, an incumbent and the predecessor. And uh, so, will either one be considered an incumbent? Maybe. Voters will look at both of them as an incumbent and either as an incumbent. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, one of them didn't lose, right? So, right. 
I mean, uh, yeah, you, you, you made it a, a fantastic point, which is you said you're not really convinced that either Biden or Trump will be the, the ultimate candidate. So not to put you on the spot, uh, you know, and again, there's no crystal ball here, but we're ways out. What do you think is going to happen in the next election? Give us, give us a, a bird's eye and then maybe a ground level view if you can. Well, I live on the spot, so uh, yeah. I don't. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, and if I veer off the spot, you know, it, it's always a problem. But well, that's actually that's actually the point of the podcast. Please feel free. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but you know, I mean, if if you look at this election uh, as a sort of a regular election uh, with stable voting patterns, and by the way, during the Trump era, we have had stable. Of voting patterns, right? Yeah, and uh, you look at Trump's numbers when he was president. There was almost no movement, you know, on his job rating or any of it during the whole election. Uh, once Biden got through his honeymoon over the first few months, there's been very little movement in his job rating, True. and most of the polls in the presidential race are showing you know one or two point race right now. So, so it's not like it's jumping up and down and it's crazy and chaotic. It's actually pretty stable. So if you look at that, you would assume you'll have a, a Biden-Trump race in the end. And uh, and maybe, you know, if there are third candidates in it, like, you know, Cornell West, the Green Party, or the or if Robert Kennedy Jr. gets in and he could take votes from both sides. Right. Uh, that could have a big impact in close states. But so so it's you know, it's obviously hard to predict. But but the reason why I said I'm not sure that both of these candidates will be the nominee is, you know, you've got one candidate who's who has 91 felony charges against him. Yes, only 91. Yeah, and I mean, none of us know when those trials will be. Correct. And whether those trials lead to convictions or not and what effect that could have on the campaign. Uh, former President Trump is in the middle of a, of a business fraud situation right now. You don't know right. what extent that can can deprive him of his his assets and, and make yeah, things and, and for those who aren't familiar the new york attorney general uh announced yesterday that the courts found that that mr trump had uh and his companies had committed business fraud by overstating their financials uh to establish their business presence and then revoked their license to basically do business in the state of new york right which has been the trump home for business home forever so it's right. a big right. deal and uh, and on the other side of the coin, you've got uh, uh, Joe Biden. And I have to tell you, the, the vast majority of the American people do not want Joe Biden to be president again. It's not that they so much dislike him or that they disagree with everything he's done. Is it an it's age that, thing? Is that they think he's too old and they, yeah. and they question his mental and physical capacity. You know, and, and it's not, you know, when you think about it, Joe Biden's 80 years old. He's going to be 81 next month. And if he's president again, he'll be president until he's 86. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of Americans say, well, he, he seems to be pretty a little creaky and fragile and he's 80. What's he going to be like when he's 83 and 84 and 85 and 86? Right. And uh, and I think that issue is hurting Biden more now than the Democrats expected it to. Yeah. And I think a lot right. of Democrats would like to get out of this predicament 
where they where they feel like they're stuck with Biden and Kamala Harris, who, by the way, is less popular than Biden. So she doesn't help the ticket. She brings it down in a lot of ways. And uh, so you've got two presidential candidates here on each side who have major, major problems. Uh, you know, big majorities of the American people do not want either Biden or Trump elected, and they dread an election with just those two. So is there an alternative that you see, or is this just sort of a fait accompli? Yeah, is, this, is there an opening for a serious, legitimate third, like a third party, party independent yeah. candidate? Or Well, uh, you know, Andrew, as you know, I've been looking for openings for third party candidates for <laughs> decades. And, <laughs> and uh, even though I actually think they have been some significant openings, nobody ever takes them. Well, Ross but, Perot um, is there, but I think he's right. Yeah. And, 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 and in a you know, short campaign after he got out and came back in, he got almost 20 percent of the vote. Yeah. Right. So it shows you what, you know, sort of a nonpartisan independent message can have uh, in, a, in an election. And and I do think it, uh, a third candidate could could get some votes. The uh, but 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 I think what we're looking at now is to what extent the Democratic Party will stick with Biden and Kamala Harris uh, if they feel like nominating them will make it more possible to to elect Donald Trump as president. Right. I mean, you recently had Mitt Romney step down or say he's not running for reelection. And then basically, you know, in a no holds barred press conference said these people are too old and they need to step aside. It's I think it's on everybody's mind. Yeah. But for the Democrats also, even if they don't want Biden, well, somebody has to step forward. Right. Right. And, and it's not, uh, who's that? Not RFK Jr. It's probably not Marion <laughs> Williamson. So, And nobody well, wants well, to take well, on him. You know, there's a lot of possible Democratic candidates for president. Uh, you know, you never have to worry about finding candidates when it's an open race. They'll oh, be definitely. there. Uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, wants to run for president so bad he can see it and taste it. You can, it. You he's, can he's, see he's it on his face. He's debating Ron DeSantis right. in a few weeks, right. I think, isn't he? Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah he's, he's doing whatever he can just to get in. And yeah. uh, uh, another candidate who I think could be a potential, potentially strong candidate is Governor uh, uh, Whitmer of Michigan. Oh, yeah. Very popular. I think, you know, she, she's done well in, in, in the last elections, her re-election. She's from Michigan, which is one of the most important swing states. And I think she'd be a, a significant possibility. Uh, you know, one of my favorites, who I think is one of the best public officials around and, I, and, and probably be one of the best presidents that the Democrats could offer, is Gina Raimondo, who's the oh. Secretary of Commerce and former governor of Rhode Island. Yeah, she's right. amazing. So, I mean, she's not likely to be as strong as maybe Whitmer or Newsom, but she could be a significant candidate. Right. Especially, you know, in terms of qualifications. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, one thing I did want to ask, because it ties into all this, in addition to all of your work with uh, elections and polling, uh, you know, you're also, of course, a been a long time, very astute observer of, of the media and, and, and a participant in the media and so how they cover politics. And that's the way many people uh, consume information. And, and it, you know, it, it feels like these days, you know, the media is probably as well regarded as tax collectors and 
I don't know, um, you know, Hollywood movie studio executives, uh, you know, Republicans, of and, course. And, and, law, and lawyers and politicians. Well, and law, exactly, right. Um, <laughs> uh, not that we know any here in D.C. But, I mean, you know, Republicans, of course, have long complained the mainstream media is the tank for Democrats. Democrats, especially over the last few years, argue the media basically is bending over backwards to, you know, equal or show equivalence between, between Trump and, and Biden. Uh, you know, how did we get to this place where it seems nobody trust the media at all and and how do we how do we get out of that well i think even in the people in the media are unhappy with the media <laughs> and uh and 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 i think the the big reason is technology is pushing journalism it's pushing the media uh it's creating pressure on everybody to make money uh, on everybody to get eyeballs and clicks and audiences. We've had that before in the past, but not with this specificity and and in this direct link the way we have now. So so that's having a big impact on media. And the other thing too is is uh, you know, talk radio showed this and and Roger Ailes with Fox News showed this that um that it, that if you target uh, a a uh, medium, or you know, a TV network or a newspaper or podcast, whatever you're looking at, uh, to an ideological group or a partisan group, uh, you will probably do a better better building an audience than you would if you're just trying to be objective and and in somewhere in the middle. So um, so there's a lot of pressures on the media to uh, you know to play to audiences and uh, and there's financial pressures. Uh, I don't, you know, outside of the Wall Street Journal, which I think is an excellent paper, uh, you know, few papers or newspapers are as good as they used to be. Right. Sure. And a lot of it has to do with there's less personnel, there's less reporters, there's less investigators. Yeah, that entire labor pool has had a yeah. bloodletting over the last yeah. Local papers are, are real. They don't even exist anymore. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, well, they do exist. I write columns for local papers and and I can tell you that um, that we, we we do get uh, quite a few eyeballs on them, and hopefully they they will uh, continue to exist and survive. Well, that's good. But, but as you say, it's hard, and a lot of them have gone out of business, and a lot of them are are, are cut their services, and uh, and I you know that's unfortunate, but but that's the world we live in. It's very competitive, right? And uh, in in you know as as uh, uh the uh the lead character on the TV show Succession said, <laughs> you know, it's all about a number on a piece of paper. That's right. And the number's a dollar sign in front of it. <laughs> so okay, we're 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 getting toward a a point then in this country and and you know basically lack of access to quality media is happening, if not already happened. And the country seems to be, you know, pulling away from each other more than moving toward each other in in a big way. So more so, perhaps more so, time, more so than any other time in our history. Do you think that's the case? And if so, how do we how do we reverse that? How do we reverse that trend? Yes, I agree. I think you you hit the nail on the head there. And and I think a lot of it has to do with the. You know the old adage: if it bleeds, it leads. If there's conflict, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's covered. If there's no conflict, people say it's boring and don't cover it. 
and um I, you know i've i've been on some tv shows and with a uh i'm independent and so you know with a democrat and a republican and we would talk about different issues and and I would disagree with both sides and they would disagree with me. And and then after it was over with that, they'd say, oh, we think you're right. But the but the party gave us the talking points. So right. we had to yeah. read exactly. the talking points. Exactly. And uh, and and so here you have very intelligent people, Republicans and Democrats, who are saying things they know not to be true. Yeah, because patently demand now, you know, yeah. and uh, and and the networks want conflict. Uh, they don't want. How many times do you hear the term "common ground" on 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 network news? Doesn't exist. It doesn't. Let's exist. find common ground. Let's find a way to work this out. You know, they're 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 ripping one another apart. And when when people do try to find common ground, it's often a delicate, difficult process that doesn't lend itself to easy news coverage. Right. And it's funny because if you asked a lot of voters, certainly in the middle, they'd say, of course, we want people to compromise and find common ground and stuff. But when push comes to shove, well, many of them don't vote, first of all. So, you know, elections often seem to be left to the the partisans. And uh, yeah, Andrew, and and there's a reason for that. The reason is they don't have anybody to vote for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're an independent and and you are not happy with either party and uh, you look at elections and. You don't have a, a viable third candidate. Uh, who do you vote for? You know, and uh, and one of the things about Perot's first election in 1992 was that uh, his name being on the ballot greatly increased voter turnout. And right. uh, and of course, since then, we've seen Donald Trump greatly increase voter turnout uh, because on both sides. <laughs> right. Yeah. And. Uh, so, so he's kind of acting as the, as both a partisan candidate and a, an anti-establishment independent candidate all at one time. Hmm. So, you know, we're we're in a podcast talking about the intersection of politics and the green economy, and so yeah, I know you're a lifelong resident of the great city of New Orleans and a great champion for that city, but. And I know you're also very involved in rebuilding efforts post-Katrina. I know I myself lived down there post-Katrina when I was head of government affairs for an insulation manufacturer and was just told by the leadership of that company to give away insulation to anybody that wanted it. And so, you know, 15-ish years later, we've got massive storms and huge weather events that are becoming much more normal than otherwise. So... Talk to us a little bit, switching gears, about, you know, some of the lessons that have been learned from Katrina and, and talk, talk to us about how the great city of New Orleans is doing. Well, you know, in terms of, of the help New Orleans and South Louisiana received from the federal government uh, in, in the recovery phase after Katrina, it, it's been it's been very important and critical to the city's existence. Right. Uh, we have a. a a strong, much stronger levy system than we had before. Yeah. And and as a result of that, most property in New Orleans is now in the in the X flood zone, which right. is the best flood zone, as opposed to, you know, one of the worst. And um and and so that that's been a big, big help. Uh the um the 
money that was used to rebuild schools and hospitals and infrastructure uh, have had a great impact on the city. Uh, now, look, New Orleans has its problems. One of its big problems is leadership. Sure. Uh, it, it needs better leadership. And uh, and uh, and at this stage of the game, you know, people in New Orleans are not happy with the way things are going. They're not happy with the crime rate. They're not happy with with how the money is being spent. Not to say that it's being stolen, but but in terms of, you know, is, is the planning right? Is, you know, are the planning principles correct that that are being used? I also think, you know, on the downside that uh, that a lot of the community planning ideas that Andrew and I had worked with, with the American Institute of Architects and, sure. and other planners or, and engineers and historic historic preservationists around the country, I do think we missed out some opportunities there. There was, you know, because when you're rebuilding from scratch, uh, as was the case uh, in, in New Orleans, in a, in a lot of places, it gives you an opportunity to do some things right that you hadn't done before. Now, some of some of those opportunities were taken, but not all of them and not as much as they should have. So so I think that's one of the other lessons involved. Agreed. Yeah, I remember being down there. Was it, Ron, maybe a month, two months after Katrina? Right. And you were right. led efforts to have, I think, one of the first rebuilding summits there with federal folks, state, right. local and, you know, a lot of optimism. But, you know, the pressure to, to build quickly, get things back and. Yeah, sometimes people don't always learn the lessons of the past. It's 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 a it's a tough situation because there was such a good opportunity to really rethink how you can have this city. But you know, it's hopefully as as things move on, you know, the city does is able to remain resilient, and certainly other places along the coasts, as we see sea levels rise, can can hopefully learn what to do and what not to do from from those kinds of experiences. Yeah, actual best yeah, practices. It, yeah. And the, you know, I mean, I think basically uh, the city was back together in about seven or eight years after mm -hmm. Katrina hit. It took about seven or eight years, you know, to get it together. And at that stage, New Orleans was better than it had ever been. Uh, the community spirit was great. There was an influx of new people coming into the city. Uh, people uh, around the country and the world took note of New Orleans and they did whatever they could to help. So, so New Orleans really owes a lot to, to people around the country and in other parts of the world who were helpful. And, uh, and, and that worked, you know, that community spirit worked. And, and I would say one of the important lessons, some of the most effective things that worked were, were things that were done and, and uh, implemented by churches and private organizations and groups uh uh businesses and nonprofits coming in doing things yeah uh and and they tended to make a real difference in terms of helping and touching human beings over a period of time i guess there's some hope there even in a bitter divided country you know there are times and unfortunately it takes tragedy sometimes like a 911 oh. like katrina for people to to pull together but i guess that's maybe some hope for optimism that when the when it really need it you know, people can pull together. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point and a, and a great lesson from all of it, that um, that we don't have to wait until tragedies and right. crisis to uh, to pull together. We should be doing that on everything. Now, I know that's asking a lot at this stage of the game, but 
maybe we can start, you know, like they say, how do you eat an elephant one one piece at a time? And, <laughs> you know, we can start doing it one piece at a time. Agreed. Well, listen, Ron, this has been fantastic. And we, you know, you're busy. Uh, I, I, we don't want to take up any more of your time, but can't thank you enough for being with us today. And uh, maybe we'd, we'd ask you to come back on in, in six or eight months and give us another bird's eye view of of sort of what's going on in, in the election cycle and where we were, where we are headed and where we were when we last spoke. Well, good. I, I would ask you if you bring me back on to do it after the election. <laughs> no, <laughs> predictions are about easier at that point. Much better than. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. We will take you at your word, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic interview, I thought, if yeah. I do say so myself. And you may say so. No, he, he's great. And you know, it's it's a point we talked before about a lot about polls and things like that. And, you know, he makes a really good point that not all polls are created equal. Yeah. And it's not just the quality of the poll, but it's how you use it, how you recognize that it's a snapshot in time. A poll taken today about the 2024 election, which is 13 months away, you know, you have to understand it's about what's happening right now and things change. And so I thought it right. was really... Right, it's a snapshot. And and, and yeah. that's what people need to really bear in mind. Anything could happen between now and a year from now. As we've seen, a lot can happen. I mean, that's right. yeah. Well, so what have we learned? We've we <laughs> learned this time. <laughs> we've learned that, that Ron is a political genius and, um, and, and storied in his career, and we were thrilled to have him. We, we've learned that... Um, again, those snapshots help us see forward and backward. Right. right. And we've also learned that um, apparently some politicians are ignoring that in Washington, D.C. <laughs> currently. So, yes. you know, again, this podcast will probably come out. Uh, either there will be a shutdown or there won't be a shutdown. That was some really impeccable uh, predictions. Thank there. you. Yes, there Thank will you. be a 50, shutdown or will not. 50 shots. Exactly. Actually, yeah. I think it's more like 90, 10. Probably. Point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've we've come a long way in the discussion, but how do we get back to that level of bipartisanship is really sort of the main question in my mind. And, and I don't know that there's a path. I don't see it. I don't know. You know, the, the irony is, the thing that's very frustrating is if, if you work here, you see there are a lot of members of Congress who really do work in a bipartisan way. And, yeah. And, Across the aisle, you don't hear them as much because, as Ron talked about with the media, well, they it's, aren't. It's, they it's, aren't it's the loud ones who who, right. who who get a lot of attention. And you know, he makes a really good point. They want the conflict. Right. They want the chaos. And, and Ron made a really good point about also this openings opportunity for other candidates. You know, there are Republicans, there are Democrats. Let's be clear, nobody is really excited about the upcoming matchup between uh, you know Biden and Trump. Right. But you know, finding that. The kind of person, that right kind of person, or group of people who are in the middle there—it's it, it, hard, but there is that opening. And I look, I—I I don't think either of us would do what we do if we weren't didn't have some optimism, some hope that the things will—it's true—get better, or at least will muddle along in a way that things get done, even if it's messy. And that's the thing. I mean, it's yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of like I see it as sort of like the stock market, right? If no one invested in the stock market and it didn't go up in value, it would go out of business. Miraculously, right. it doesn't. And I, I sort of see at least politics inside the Beltway and, and national campaigns such as the presidential election in much the same manner. And so 
I guess that brings us to our conclusion that this week and this month. Uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us here on the Political Shadings podcast, sponsored by Somfy North America. And so to that, uh, my name is John Lawyer, your host. And I'm Andrew Goldberg, your partner in crime, I guess. Outstanding. Um, we will be back next month with another guest. And in the meantime, uh, please feel free to download, stream, like, and listen. And we would love your feedback. So talk to you soon.